the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I hear it's raining outside in some places pretty hard, so please be careful. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we get together every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind, uh, problems in your life. Just questions about what we believe as Christians or why we will do the best we can to answer your questions. You need only to call us. Area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free if you're outside the local area, 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. And you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Just hit call now. Uh, Because it's Wednesday, we got a lot going on. Wednesday's my favorite day of the week. Um, I love doing the program. I get to do the Bible study tonight. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 20. And um, um, tomorrow, see, Wednesday means date day's coming. That means I get to spend the day with Paula tomorrow. And, of course, she'll be on the program uh, on the date day edition of the show tomorrow. So, ladies, it's your day. If you have any questions or any comments or even need any encouragement, Paula will be here ready for you. A um, couple of things going on. This is, this is a great day. I, I was informed that it's today is National Pancake Day. Now, that matters a lot because pancakes are my absolute favorite food in the entire world. So I haven't had my pancake today, but I have a suspicion Paul is going to take me to have pancakes tomorrow morning. Uh, but seriously, some really good stuff is happening. Um, I just got an email from Pastor Ken, and uh, he was counseling with a couple in our church, and he said, uh, Counseling with Zeke and Marcia went really well. They're so excited for Jesus. They have the marriage license and signed the waiver. I'll be marrying them today here in the classroom at 4.15 p.m. And then he says, I really love what I do. You know, here's the story behind Zeke and Marcia. Zeke has been coming to our church for some time and uh, is one of those guys that kind of in and out. He went to our men's retreat this weekend and just had a radical moment with God. Um, asked a question. Uh, He's got a wife who is the mother of his children. He said, am I in sin? Am I causing her to sin? And I said, yes, you are. And having met Jesus in a very intimate way, he wanted to do the right thing. Well, it was even better than that. As he went home, Saturday night, Saturday afternoon, the retreat was over. He went home, talked with her. She came to church the next morning, and before service even started, she got saved. 
and the fruit of that is they are going to be married in just a few minutes here today. See, that's what meeting Jesus does. You know, people accuse us at times of being legalistic. Oh, it's the same thing. God understands. He doesn't. But when somebody really meets Jesus, that's the kind of radical transformation that occurs. So please keep Zeke and Marcia in your prayers. Their children's lives have changed forever. Mom and Dad met Jesus this past weekend. And today, when Mom and Dad come home, they're going to be Mr. and Mrs. And God can really and will really bless the marriage. So um, serving Jesus is great. That's why Pastor King can write, I really love what I do. Let me get to some questions. 340-9585 are... Our phone number is our phone number. Our first one is from our email inbox. This is from William. He says, in life we have stages to look forward to. We're kids, teens, collegers, marriage, parents, grandparents. As a Christian, the idea of eternity is a little scary to me. I mean, it never ends. And as far as my understanding of heaven is, based on what we have in the Bible, there won't be exactly these same stages to go through or look forward to. That's not to say I think heaven's going to be boring. I'm fairly confident it won't be. But, like, aren't you a little nervous about the concept of the same thing with no change for all eternity? I feel like here on earth we have things to look forward to as we change through life. I'm excited to get married someday, to be a parent, then a grandparent. And heaven? I'm excited for heaven. But I'm also a little, it's a little unnerving to think about the same thing lasting for all eternity. My mind hurts just thinking about it. What are your thoughts? William, I think if if we're all honest, uh, the, the, the pictures that we've been painted uh, in our imaginations of heaven uh, by the world that we live in has been so distorted. Um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that God has in store for those who are his. Now, let me explain to you about seasons. Obviously, I'm a lot older than you are. So when you get to be my age, when you look back at those stages, and you realize that for the most part, the best is past. I'd love to be 20 again and walking with Jesus in the relationship that I have now. I would love to relive that day where I knocked on Paula's door and she opened it and we were madly in love with each other. Um, The idea of becoming a parent the first time, it was an overwhelming thing. And all of those stages are good, but here's what we need to understand about eternity. Jesus is going to be spending forever unveiling to us the secrets of everything. I've always in my mind, and this is just the way my mind thinks, and this isn't the way it's going to be in heaven. I have no idea. And intentionally, heaven and the descriptions of heaven are, are left out. Words, human words can't describe it. But I've always imagined every day like going to a class, not being able to wait to see what Jesus is going to teach us today. Maybe one day he'll take us to the farthest parts of the universe and explain how it was. Maybe he'll talk about creation the day he said, let there be light, and there was. But here's what I know. We're going to know everything, and yet we're going to be taught everything at the same time. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but not only is heaven not going to be boring, it's going to be one of those things that is absolutely um, overwhelming to us all of the time. So will we have stages? The only stage it will have forever is perfection. But in the perfection, Jesus will be revealed to us more and more and more as we walk with him. We will finally realize what we're created to do. Here's a picture, William, that I hope will help you. Imagine being a plow horse. And you think, well, my life here is drudgery and I'm just going to tow... Row this the ground up, and you know it's just up one side and down the other side, and it's just hard work. Well, imagine hitching a racehorse, a thoroughbred racehorse, American Pharaoh, Triple Crown winner, 
to that same plow. How frustrating it would be. Well, I say that because in heaven, we're going to be the thoroughbreds. And again, not only will it not be boring, but more than we can ask or imagine awaits us. And we'll realize for the first time why we were created. We'll realize for the very first time that the the true height and width and breadth and depth of God's love. And so, no, it won't be boring at all. Not only will it not be boring, uh, there won't be anything to look forward to because every day, every moment, now there's no time in heaven, you know that, but from our perspective, every day would be everything at once. How perfect is that? Not just worshiping Jesus, we will be doing that. But imagine the things that we will learn. In heaven we will know in full, know as we are known by God. I can't wait. So I don't have any reluctance at all. Uh, my mind doesn't hurt, but, but I wish I knew more. I think when I get to heaven and run into some of the people that come to my church, you know, and I've been doing Bible studies, I think a lot of times they're going to look at me and say, well, Pastor Ron, why didn't you tell us it was going to be this good? And my answer is going to be, in, on earth, I didn't have the words. So, William, everything in heaven is going to be infinitely better than the best thing here on earth. Hope that at least encourages you a little bit. Here is a question from our email inbox from Jose. Jose says, I am so sick of liberal Christians saying we need to support the LGBT community. My Jesus is all about grace and love no matter what, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, do you even read the Bible? Yes, we need to show the LGBT love. Jesus would show them love. And he's all about grace and love. But to support the sin and say, it's okay, God accepts you, kumbaya, Jesus wouldn't accept their sin. Exclamation point, by the way. I don't know what to do. What scripture can I use to prove these liberal Christians that Jesus is not okay with supporting the LGBT community? I'm horrible at memorizing verses, but I know they're in there in the Bible. I'll say a couple of things. Um, I, I want you to be more intimate with your Bible. Um, it's it's not good enough to say I'm horrible at memorizing verses. You know they're in there somewhere. You need to know your word. Now, here's why I'm saying it, Jose. And please forgive me uh, in advance if this is offensive. I don't mean it to be. I don't know who you are. Um, but but there's just there's no love in your response at all. Uh, as you have heard on this radio program, if you've been listening any time at all, I am not at all reluctant to call sin, sin. In Galatians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told that people who live like that, a lifestyle of homosexuality, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I love them so much, Jose, that I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to tell them the truth because I want them in heaven. And if they don't like me for that, that's between them and God on the day when they stand before him. But I'm going to be blameless because I'm going to tell people the truth. When I teach the Bible, when I answer questions, I'm going to do that. However, I can promise you, your email question comes off like you're angry. We're not going to reach people that way. So let me tell you how you reach what you call liberal Christians to convince them that Jesus is not okay with supporting the, the LGBT community, um, I would introduce them to Jesus. You see, you can't be a Christian. By that I mean people aren't saved if they don't agree with Jesus. It's that simple. Now, I understand when people first get saved, I understand the sentimentality, I understand the emotion involved in this issue. I understand that people have been brainwashed to believe that everything is okay. Uh, Tanya, who calls, uh, she listens every day, but she called just yesterday uh, with her question with her uh, son in a college class in, in the Bay Area in California where um, nobody thinks what they're doing is wrong. Um, that young man is going to stand up and tell him it's wrong because God said so. God always has his people everywhere. So here's the thing that you've got to understand. When you talk about liberal Christians, these are not believers. 
They may know about Jesus, but I promise you, Jose, they don't know him. Because if they know him, they would agree with him. It's just that simple. Uh, I just gave the example of Zeke and Marcia who are getting married in just a couple of minutes here at our church because they want to please God. That's what happens when people really meet God. So what you need to do, instead of getting angry at these people, you need to love them and pray for them and share the real Jesus with them. Don't argue with them. Don't let them frustrate you. Don't let their flesh cause you to be in your flesh. And Jose, these are people that aren't the enemies of your ministry. They're the objects of your ministry. Please, please don't ever forget that. And as a an unbeliever, why would I listen to somebody who's so lacking in love? So Jose, the thing that you've got to remember is that these people don't know our Jesus. On the other hand, and this might sting a little bit, but you need to know your Jesus. And your Jesus would never phrase things the way you did in this letter. You need to look at people who are lost with compassion. You need to look at people who have been deceived by the world that we live in as objects of your evangelism. But until you can love them, God's not going to give you the opportunity to minister to them. It's that simple. It's not an adversarial relationship. If they make it that way, you know, Paul says, as far as it depends on you, make peace with all people. But there are people that we can't make peace with. But that doesn't mean we have the right to get angry with them or frustrated with them or think about them. To say, I'm so sick of liberal Christians. I'm sick of the doctrines for sure. I'm heart sick that people believe it and are being deceived into heaven but I understand they're not real believers. They would say, oh, I believe in Jesus, not the real one. You haven't met him. Because if you meet him, you change. Jesus said, if you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of his. And I say this to make a point, but the Spirit's first name is Holy Spirit. And when he comes in you, when he takes possession of you, when you're born again, you change. And the first change is we have to agree with God, again, with Zeke and Marcia. On Thursday, they were fine, they thought, the way they were. Zeke was a professing believer. By the way, he proved he really was a believer. God always, always brings him to that place. On a Sunday morning, Marcia became a believer. And they come with a marriage license and ready to get right with God and stay right with God. That's what happens when you really and truly meet Jesus. The man of the woman, Jose, who doesn't change, hasn't met him. The professing Christian who doesn't agree with him, hasn't met him. And while I have no doubt that you're a believer, Jose, being angry, saying things like I'm so sick of, that's not the, the heart of Jesus. And he wants you to meet him in a relational way. You've already met him, you're saved. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. But he wants you to rightly represent him. You're his ambassador. You have no right to your own opinion. You have no right to get angry at people. Jesus didn't get angry when they spit on him, Jose. When they beat his face, tore his beard out, when they hurled insults at him, Jesus' response was, Father, forgive them. That needs to be your response. And the way I would pray for people that you're angry with, Jose, is Jesus, open their hearts. They're blinded by the world that we live in. Open their hearts. They think they're okay. Imagine, they're going to take a, figuratively speaking, a counterfeit eternal life insurance policy. Heaven's not going to be cashed. 
So here's what you do. You pray for them. You pray for them. Let me mention one other thing, Jose. If you get the time, you don't come to our church. So um, watch the message I'm going to do on Sunday. We put it on, it's on live stream, but you can watch it. It's archived immediately following our three services. Because I'm going to talk about some of these very issues. How do we love the unlovable? The answer is, well, we don't know, but Jesus said you got to. So that's what we need to do. Jose, I hope that wasn't terribly offensive. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, yesterday you had a question about a man who didn't feel like he was a leader of his home. How should married couples deal with doctrinal disagreements? Um, this is always a touchy subject, but um, if you're equally yoked in a marriage, uh, it should be simple. I say this often on this program. The husband and the wife have to agree to agree with Jesus. If we agree to agree with him, then we don't have any disagreements. We simply take his position on things. Uh, unfortunately, too many Christians get involved in unequally yoked relationships, either with unbelievers, people from different faiths. Um, we're unequally yoked in terms of passion and commitment. Um, uh, so here's, here's how you do it. You sit down with your spouse and you read the word together and you talk about it. You agree that there's no room for opinions. You just take the word and read it to one another. That's what a husband and wife does. You know, this is a hard thing to explain. Paul and I, we try so hard to explain it, but we I don't think we get it. When a husband and a wife sit down in the supernatural word of God together, God begins to supernaturally unite their hearts. You're reading together. You're talking together, you're asking questions together. And when you want to meet with God, God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him, we're told the word. So if you're seeking God as a husband and a wife, He's going to meet you. He's going to meet you. And He'll work out those doctrinal differences. Now, doctrinal differences, I, I don't insist that Paula believes everything that I do. And I'm sure there are some things that she probably differs with me on. But it doesn't keep us from walking together and serving the Lord. And by the way, I, I said that speculatively. I don't know if she, I don't know what she would disagree with me on. But, but it doesn't change the fact that God has partnered us up and God uses us. And we can talk about things. If there was something that she disagreed, we could work through the scriptures on it. And then if, in fact, we still have a disagreement, the answer is the husband is the spiritual head of the household. As to what church you go to, never, ever, ever, ever should a husband and wife go to different churches. Never. And there is a time when a husband and wife have sit down over the Bible and say, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And then making a decision about where you're going to worship together as a family. These are such important issues to work through and to work out. But at some point, we've got to say, okay, here's what God said. The tiebreaker is the husband is the spiritual leader in the house. Now, husbands, I want you to understand this. Anonymous, especially in your particular case, because I'm dealing with this specific question, it means you better be a man of the word. It means you better be right. It means you need to study to show yourself approved, a workman rightly dividing the word of God. And you need to deal with your wife in love, with patience, and understanding. And then God will do the work. I think sometimes we sit down, we try to argue something out, and Jesus can't be there. 
But if you purpose in your heart, husband and a wife will purpose in their heart to be in the Word together and in love and with seeking understanding. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do as Jesus meets you. And he'll deal with a lot of other issues in the relationship as well. Because that's what he does in the Word of God. I think way too often we try to apply natural solutions to supernatural problems. And anonymous, it just doesn't work. So doctrinally, open your Bible and discuss these issues. And dig in and search out the answers and let the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work. Hope that answers the question. Well, we would love to have your live phone calls. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And in about two minutes, we'll be back. 340-9585. We will see you in two minutes. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, another anonymous question. Uh, What does someone have to believe to be a part of your Calvary Chapel group of churches? Anonymous, we're not a denomination, so we don't have, like, strict rules. Nobody's looking over shoulders. But but we're a group of churches in fellowship or in affiliation with one another. And, and we don't pay. We don't have the, uh, a, a board that governs us. We don't have to pay any money. We don't uh, support similar causes or anything. Uh, We're just a group of pastors in fellowship, but our fellowship is around what we call a certain set of distinctives. So the distinctives that that make a Calvary Chapel a Calvary Chapel. Um, I think the the, the primary thing would be a distinctive uh, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter teaching style. We teach the Bible. We don't do... Uh, topical studies. We don't tell stories. We teach the Bible, the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. Um, and and it's very, very important. Our founding pastor, Chuck Smith, used to say, uh, if somebody is in, in Europe or if they're in the, in the United States and they go to Calvary Chapel, I want them to be as confident that they're going to get um, the same meal served before him. And you always used to use McDonald's as an example. You know, it doesn't matter what state you're in. If you go to a McDonald's, you know what you're going to get. So it's a an emphasis on the Word of God. We're a charismatic group of churches. By that, I mean we believe that we the, the gifts of the Spirit are for today. They need to be operated decently and in order. Uh, but we do believe that the gifts of the Spirit are active. We are... A church that believes in a pre-trib rapture of the church, a pre-millennial rapture. Um, we believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to rule and reign on this earth. Uh, that is a Calvary Chapel distinctive. We don't want somebody teaching that, well, maybe it's going to be a post-trib or a pre-wrath rapture of the church. Uh, that doesn't describe nor define who we are. So we understand that people have different doctrinal issues. It doesn't disqualify them from the family of God. We believe it disqualifies them from being uh, a part of our family in terms of Calvary Chapel. Not the greater body of Christ, but we want doctrinal consistency. We are not Calvinists or Reformed in our approach. Um, We are very committed to um, the balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Um, and it is it would just be impossible to fellowship uh, in in the sense of being a part of a group of, of like-minded brothers if, if they believe that God just arbitrarily chooses some for heaven and some for hell. Um, we also would not want anybody to be a part of our fellowship uh, if they were uh, faith or prosperity teachers. 
Um, we want the Bible taught in context. Um, we, we want people to know how to use the Bible. When they leave a Bible study, their lives ought to be able to change. And so those are the, the primary things, uh, Anonymous, that... that uh, make us a, a group of churches in fellowship with one another. Um, music styles, pastor styles, those things don't seem to matter so much. Uh, we here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, uh, primarily um, we worship the Lord in contemporary Christian worship songs, uh, doctrinally sound songs, um, but but uh, beyond that, we, we just, we just want to be sure that we're giving people Jesus. So I hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from uh, Christina, uh, Pastor. Are you in favor of single Christians fostering or adopting? Uh, Christina, listen very closely. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. Um, obviously, as Christians, we believe that a mom and a dad together serving God provides the most stable home. Uh, but. Fostering a child uh, is one of the kindest things that can be done and, and one of those things that will be the great blessing to you if you do it. Um, I think as a single Christian, you should uh, count the cost, uh, but I find no problem at all with offering a Christ-like home to somebody who's never had one. We have... Um, in fact, just um, last week, or maybe time's going really fast, it was two weeks ago, uh, but we just had a meeting with um, uh, a foster agency, uh, and it came up because uh, we have a bunch of uh, families in our church who are fostering, and that fostering process has turned into an adoption process. And when you see the, the damage that's been done to these children, and God puts his finger on your heart and says there's somebody you can help and then you see the way these kids respond you know before and I've said this on the program before but before the program just before four o'clock every day we have a whole bunch of kids come into this house or into my office uh, in the studio here and they pray for you they pray for me they pray for the radio program and today we had uh, some of those kids who were who are being fostered and are in the process of being adopted, should that be the choice that's made. Um, and, and these kids are now in our school, and they have a stable, loving environment. They feel safe and protected for the very first time. And again, we've had several families in our church do this. And, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. So if that's the heart God has given you, Christina, go for it. I'm really, really proud of you. Here is a question for Gloria, from Gloria. Pastor Ron, what's the best way for a church to be relevant in today's complicated world? Well, you're right about one thing. It is a complicated world. But a church should never seek to be relevant. A church should seek to be faithful, Gloria. The difference between relevant and faithful is enormous. Uh, the best way to stay relevant is to teach the Bible verse by verse. You know, one of the things that I know tonight when people come in on Sunday, uh, Friday before that, and then Sunday when the, the larger crowds come in, I know that every person in that sanctuary is going to leave accountable to God because they're going to be taught everything. The, the fun stuff, the easy stuff, the encouraging stuff, and the hard stuff. And it's relevant because every single person that comes in the sanctuary, and this is true of every church, they've got issues, they've got problems, they've got things that they don't know how to deal with. I pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, and the confused daily. And they're all here. And it's the Word of God that they're going to get. And there's nothing in this world more relevant. We try to make ourselves relevant we end up doing just the opposite. When we simply teach the Word simply, then the supernatural Word of God is going to hit every heart, and every single one of those people is going to have to deal with God. If they do, 
God will bless them. If they don't, God's going to continue to chase them. But there's nothing more relevant than getting together with believers, opening the Bible, and teaching them who Jesus is. You know, Paul writes that we're to find out what pleases the Lord. How can you do that any other way? That's relevance. So, Gina, I hope that answers your question, but it's not to tell stories. It's not to be inclusive. It's not to do any of those things. The only thing that we're accountable to is equip the saints for the work of ministry. The only way that can be done effectively is in the Word. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Now, I also recognize that there are great preachers and pastors who don't teach verse by verse or all the way through the Bible. They'll do topical series, but but the good pastors are in those topical series. They're focusing on the passage of Scripture, what it means, what it says, how to use it, and they equip their people that way. I just personally believe with all of my heart that teaching it verse by verse is the only way that we should do it. Uh, But there are those who are free to disagree with me, and believe me, they do. But they do probably a better job than I do when it comes to making sure that the people are fed the Word of God. So, Gloria, that's my opinion, and I think based on God's model for church. Carlos wants to know, what did Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 5.20 when he said, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Also, what did he mean when he said we should cut off our hand or gouge at our eye if they lead to sin? Um, Carlos, Matthew 5, of course, as you know, is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to uh, a big crowd. Uh, He's got his followers, but he's got also these these enemies of God. But the enemies of God were supposed to be the ones that represented God. By that I mean they were the religious leaders. They were the ones that all the people looked to for answers uh, regarding doctrine and, and, and answers about God and what they should do and how they should live. And the Pharisees, um, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Um, this would have been a staggering staggering thing. Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, he's talked to, he's given them the Beatitudes. He's given them some some information that would be striking. Blessed are you. The word means happy. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Well, a Jewish mind would never have thought you were blessed if you were poor in spirit or poor immaterially. They thought that would be a sign of a curse of God. And they would look at these religious leaders as Jesus is saying those things. Like those are the guys that have it all figured out. Jesus is setting a standard so high. Remember the Pharisees, they would count out their spices to make sure that God got his tenth. They would go out of their way to make the appearance of keeping the law. They would make loud prayers in the middle of the streets. Everybody would say, oh, what a righteous guy or a holy guy he is. And Jesus would say, even if you were that good, you're not going to get to heaven. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount's about, by the way. Even if you're as good as them, your righteousness has to exceed what's the righteousness heaven requires? Perfection. I once saw a t-shirt, still one of the favorite t-shirts I've ever seen. It says, the righteousness God requires is the righteousness His righteousness requires Him to require. That t-shirt got lots and lots of conversation started, I promise. In other words, you can't be religious. doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what other people think. The way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. So that's what he meant in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. When he talked about uh, if our hand offends, cut it off. If our eyes offend, gouge them out. It's better to go into to eternity maimed or with one hand or with one eye than to spend eternity suffering in hell. What he's talking about there, uh, Carlos, is dealing with sin viciously. Dealing with sin viciously. It's very important. You know, I, I use the term petty cake. We play petty cake with our sin. We do something, oh, I know I shouldn't have, but God understands. And No, he doesn't. We need to hate our sin. And we can apply this in our culture very simply. If your eye leads you to uh, look at pornography, 
uh, man, you gotta you gotta deal with it. Now he doesn't obviously want you to gouge out your eye, but but he's using hyperbole to make the point that we've got to violently deal with our sin, not somebody else's sin, our sin. If you're gonna steal, it'd be better to have no hand than to steal. So that's the point Jesus is making there, Carlos. He's saying that we really have to learn to hate our sin because when we don't, then our relationship with God gets all messed up. That sin separates us from walking in his perfect will. That sin separates us from the fellowship of knowing that we're loved by God. So if we'll understand that, then when we sin, we'll really hate it. And if you hate it enough, you're going to repent and you're going to change. So, Carlos, I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five phones are quiet today. Here is a question from David. David, I like this question, and I don't know if you're a teen or you're just asking for maybe your own teens. But the question is, how could teens serve in church? In what areas could they serve? Uh, I love the question because there are so many areas. Now, you know, most churches in our culture, we have a um, an adult ministry, a high school ministry, or a junior high school ministry. By the way, pray for us, please. Our junior high school Bible teacher, our, our group leader, came to me after church on Sunday and said, Pastor Ron, we need more space. We're breaking the walls down. Well, we don't have more space here. Um, but But... You know, he's equipping them, and they too want to serve. So there's all kinds of ways that they could serve. Now, serving has to cost something. So get your teens involved, or if you are a teen, David, get involved. Go to one church service where you can be taught, and then if there's multiple services, find a a place that you can serve in the second service, or in our case, we have three services on Sunday. Uh, you can serve in a prayer ministry. We have people here, as example, who pray uh, during the, all three services for for people to get saved, for people to repent if they need to, for people to be uh, to hear from God the questions that they need to hear. Um, a, a wonderful place for teens is in the usher ministry. Uh, we have a, a, a husband and a wife who head up our usher ministry, but we want lots and lots of people to serve from different age groups. So there's a place you can serve. Cleaning ministry, David, is a place where kids can serve. Um, we have uh, so many of our children. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about kids who've, been, who've grown up here who uh, serve in children's church now. Now that they're in high school or even junior high school, they serve in children's church as an aide. Um, we have technology ministries, and the kids know a lot about technology. So there's all kinds of, of technology ministries that are available for them. Um, worship ministry. Um, I think not tonight, but on Sunday this week, we're going to have uh, a very, very young group, our, our, our worship team. Um, uh, so if you're gifted in that way, you can you can serve there. But there's lots and lots of areas. Um, go to your pastor or to your youth leader and say, you know what, I'm going to come to service, of course, because I like hearing the word, but I'm going to stay around. I want to know how I can help. And I promise you, you will find all kinds of ways. You know, one other thing, and then I've got a phone call that I'll take. We have a, a ministry here, David, called Growing in Servanthood. And that's a ministry where we get kids involved at a very, very young age. And we try to encourage, it doesn't always work out this way, but we try to encourage them to serve with their parents, with their families. And so there'll be cleaning crews, there'll be, uh, it's wonderful to see these kids cleaning the mirrors or cleaning the bathrooms, uh, their, their dads with them, or, or cleaning the windows. Um, but one of the things that, that we do every Communion Sunday is we have those young kids helping the adult ushers serve communion. What a great lesson for them. It's really, really a, a, been a, a, a blessing to our church, not only to see it, but to watch these kids grow. They understand there's something special. To see a five-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old uh, passing out communion elements and seeing the Holy Spirit work on people as they pass them out, 
It's an amazing thing they get to experience God for themselves. So thank you for that, David. I hope that helps. Let's go to Live Oak, Texas now and talk with Rick on line one. Rick, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, good afternoon, uh, Pastor. Um, my question is about uh, one of the parables in Matthew. It's the one uh, with the wheat and the tear. And Christ talked about uh, the tear grows up the wheat and he lets it. And then they go in and, and harvest and the, the tear is moving. And then he goes on to say that this is what's going to happen in the end time. It, it, it sounds kind of like a, a, a reverse rapture where the angels are going to be like taking out the unbelievers. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering how that works. Can, can you help me with that? Mm-hmm. I'll just talk about it. Thank you, Rick. I can do that. I appreciate the call. A um, couple of things about the parable. The parables are all trying to make one point and only one point. So we get a little bit too um, creative uh, looking at the parables. Uh, the parable of the wheat and tares is Jesus simply saying that this is going to be the history of the church. From the time Jesus leaves and the church is established in Acts chapter 2, wheat and tares are going to grow together. Now, uh, I'm not an agronomist, um, uh, but I understand that wheat and tares look very similar. But only wheat has any nutritional value and the tares. Now, when when uh, the church is being described, uh, they say, well, who did this? Somebody planted um, tares in the field. Who did this? And, and the answer is an enemy did this. And Jesus' point is that there's always going to be an enemy. And inside Jesus' church, now for you and for me, Rick, it's the church that we belong to. In our church, in the church at large in general, there are going to be real believers and counterfeit believers sitting side by side. And of course, our response would immediately be, well, who's the real and who's the counterfeit? And that's what Jesus' disciples said. And the the parable is, you can't tell. He says, let them grow together. And at the end of time, this is a reference to when Jesus comes back. Revelation chapter 19 is when he comes back. Jesus will sort them out. The harvesting angels, that's always a reference to the end of time. The harvesting angels will sort them out because only God knows the heart. You know, we can look in our churches, Rick, and we can see that that there's somebody who looks like a real Christian, and we would be convinced they're a good person, they pay their bills, they're good citizens, and their church attendance is faithful, but they're not really born again. On the other hand, we could look at people like, uh, I, I gave the, the example at the beginning of the program of Zeke and Marsha, Zeke, who's been sitting in our church for a time, and everybody would, would assume that he's not a believer because, well, after all, he's living and having sex with a girl that he's not married to. Um, and, and so we might, we might, if we were going tear hunting, pull him out. Well, it turns out he was a real Christian. He was wheat. And God went and got him. So the idea is that every church, read Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. In every church, there's going to be real, there's going to be counterfeit. And in a lot of those letters, the counterfeit outnumber the real. Jesus says, let them grow together until the end of the age. We can't tell who's genuine, who isn't. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. But sometimes it's hard to tell. And that's what the reference is in that parable. And that's really the only point that's being made in that parable at all. So, Rick, thank you for that. I appreciate the question. Uh, 340-9585. Uh, I can't believe I just got a three-minute thing. Boy, this is one of those days where it's really going fast. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, is it okay for a church or ministry to ask for money? Oh, tough issue for me. Uh, It isn't for this church, for for this ministry, uh, because God has has made it really clear that we're never to ask for money, we're never to let our needs be known. Uh, He wants us to depend entirely on Him. Having said that, Anonymous, it is okay for a church or ministry to ask for money, um, but how they do it and what their motive is is really the the, the critical thing. Um, you know, if a church is just trying to get your money, you know, we know that unbelievers all the time are complaining about all they want in church is your money, and they make 
continual appeals for money and take multiple offerings and those kind of things. I don't think that's okay. Um, we're to give um, out of love and out of gratitude. We're not to be compelled. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians that God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. And if we pressure people to give, then we're robbing them of any reward for giving. So I don't think it's okay for a church to do that. I think the overemphasis on money has been a real detriment to the church in the United States in particular. Uh, I think we have found a way to market things. You know, one of the things about marketing, we've become so good at marketing, and this is just our world that we live in, but, but it includes the church world as well. We've become so good at marketing, we don't have to be good at what we do. And I think we have learned to sell guilt. By the way, guilt sells easily. People will pay a lot of money because they feel guilty. Uh, we can make them feel compelled by putting pressure on them. And none of that, anonymous, is okay. But is it okay to ask for money? Yeah, it takes money to operate churches. There's rent, there's utilities, there's ministries, there's staff. Uh, church, like everything else, costs a lot. And it is the responsibility of the body to support the ministry that God has called them to. So let me go to our last question today. Don't have time? Okay. Uh, I don't have time. There's the music already. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, I'll save that question for Friday's program. Remember, ladies, tomorrow is your day. Paula will be live on the program with us on the date day edition of the show. We have first, second Samuel, rather, chapter 20 tonight here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.